Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Revolution Recap. After struggling to find the net with six goals through their first nine games, the Revs finally had an outburst, scoring four times and holding two uh, two two-goal leads uh, in the game against Kansas City. But, however, shaky defense, a branded-by red card, and a questionable penalty call all led to the Revs blowing that lead and only taking away one point on the road in a crazy 4-4 draw against Sporting Kansas City. Uh, I'm Greg Johnstone. Joining me, as always, is Sean Donahue. Sean, how's it going? Man, that game was uh, not short for entertainment value. That's for sure. I, I don't know if it was the if it was very good soccer that we watched, but um, for you know one of the few times this season, I actually left the Revolution match having enjoyed watching it. Yeah, I think that they were just saving all of the uh, excitement for this one particular game because there's certainly been um, not not a whole lot. We we've certainly had a. a not a whole lot of energy and scoring chances in these games. They've really been kind of sluggish, physical 0-0 battles or 1-0 battles or 3-0 battles when it all unwinds in the final, in, in the final minutes as we had Wednesday. But uh, yesterday, certainly uh, probably one of the better games from a neutral standpoint in a long, long time. I know that there was something that we, we retweeted earlier today. I think OptiJack had... Um, that that game is having uh, 6.97 expected goals, and that's the third highest in MLS since uh, 2013. Uh, I'm going off of memory, so so the numbers might be a little bit off there, but that just kind of goes to show uh, how crazy this game was and and how many scoring chances there were. Uh, unfortunately for the Revolution, the majority of the scoring chances came from <laughs> Sporting Kansas City, but uh, the Revolution you know, made good on their chances, especially early in the game, which is something that they haven't been doing lately. Uh, and, and they uh, certainly delivered and we saw some uh, some players get their first MLS goals uh, in their careers. So um, a lot to take away from this game. Uh, Sean, what was your uh, key takeaway? Yeah, there's a lot of ways I could uh, go with this one between, you know, positive and uh, negative options. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll go with something positive, and that's that you know Juan Caicedo actually isn't a bad player. Um, what he did in this game was was phenomenal. His, his two finishes weren't. I mean, his second finish wasn't the most difficult. His first one um, was a good job to you know show that when he had time and space, he could do that spin move and, and finish. Um, and then he played a, a key role in the the third goal as well, um, the one that he didn't finish, where he you know kind of started that play with uh, a, a quick pass to Dewan Jones. Um, at the same time, he probably should have gotten ahead on that ball if he had you know read it a bit better and actually finished it himself. Uh, but he did a good job you know setting up that play as well. So um, you know we had been down on on Caicedo from what we saw in his first several games, but this was a you know very positive performance from him going forward. Um, again, you know he found a lot of space for, with Kansas City's defense and you know had time and. and on both of those goals that he finished, the first one maybe a little bit less so, but still, you know, had the time to turn before anyone got on him. Um, but this was a you know positive sign for him, and now that he's found the back of the net, um, and you know, and, and twice in this one game, I'm sure his confidence is much higher, and I expect to see him play a lot more going forward. Um, and you know, his strike partner Juan Aguadela too, I, I thought had his best game of the season. 
um, you know, with that goal and also with being involved in, in the setup for the first goal and, um, you know, heavily involved in their attack throughout. So now, for as negative as we've been on, you know, both of those two guys this season, uh, both of them really showed up big in this game. And Aguadelo was actually the, the Revs leader in touches with, with 43. And if you asked me the last time we saw a Revolution striker, and albeit, you know, later in the game, he moved back a bit, but the last time we saw a Revolution striker lead the team and, and uh, touches, I, I couldn't tell you. I don't remember that ever happening when I looked at one of these, these stats after the game. Yeah, it's a we, we, there's a bunch of weird stats that I'm sure we're going to get into. Uh, I, I, I was telling you before I, that Cody Cropper was the team leader in passes attempted. Uh, so the revolution did not have a whole lot of the ball, and that leads to a lot of crazy uh, stats. Another one that I liked was uh, if you look at um, total crosses between the teams, uh, Sporting Kansas City had 32 and the revolution had three. Uh, that's quite the disparity there. Uh, and then completed passes, 450 for Sporting Kansas City, 107 for the Revolution. So uh, <laughs> certainly, you know, a, a lot of weird stats you can take from this. And, and the Juan Agadello leading in touches, um, you can you can add to that. But for what it's worth, um, you know, I, I do think he deserves a lot of credit for that game. He was all over the place. Uh, he won a couple of balls in the midfield. Uh, he certainly added a lot to the attack, uh, had that nice little punch in. And I will give Caicedo, too, his due. Um, certainly the over-under uh, five-goal line. If you have the under five goals, uh, you're kind of sweating bullets a little bit right now because he, he's 40% of the way after last night. Um, you know, we, we talked last week, too, about, you know, he's a player that the fewer touches he has, the better. He, he's a looks like he has really, really good instincts. Um, and you know, you don't want him dribbling with the ball. You, you don't really want him to be this player that, you know, holds up the ball and, and, you know, is, is carrying the ball into the box. You want service to be there for him. Um, and, and I certainly think that you saw that one, two patch pass that you mentioned that set up that third goal was a great pass and great teamwork there with uh, Buchanan. Uh, I, I also thought his second goal there was just a brilliant touch, uh, into the goal. So yeah, we, we saw what he can do and, uh, I, I think he's earned himself some minutes going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think both of those two have ever earned themselves more minutes for, you know, as disappointing as we talk about all the time this season about the lack of revolution strikers getting shots on goal. And they had one shot on goal going into this one. It was the, the terrible Teal Bunbury header that was you know, right at the keeper on a great chance. Um, but they sure changed, turned things around in this game with Aguadelo having three shots on target and Caicedo having two in both of those um, being goals. And, you know, there's plenty of positives for the offense this game and it really looked like an offensive performance that matched more of you know what we saw last year at the beginning of the season when the revolution were, were doing well just hitting on those quick counterattacks um, that we hadn't seen much this year but uh, saw a lot of last year at the beginning of the season when the revolution were actually playing well so that's you know a, a positive to to see them find a way to you know kind of get their offense going again in that way and this game was kind of designed for it knowing that Kansas City's a team that's going to hold possession and you know the revolution are going to have to hit on the counterattack and they, they played that well. And this was a very glass half full, glass half empty game. So I'll kind of take the glass half empty takeaway, uh, which is that back line of Brandon By, Andrew Farrell, Jaleel Anibaba, and Edgar Castillo is more or less of a disaster. Um, you know, we saw this lineup against Atlanta, and they only conceded twice, but there were a number of chances. Um, they conceded four times in this game, and there were still a number of huge, huge chances for Kansas City. It's almost miraculous that they kept them at four goals. Um, the, the one big chance that I remember that uh, that that strikes me that, that should have been a, a goal was um, Andrew Farrell. I think it was about the 20th minute, turns the ball over in their own uh third uh there's kind of a quick pass into the center to a wide open Kristen Namath and he misses the misses his shot near post probably from about 10 to 12 yards out um Jaleel Anibaba 
flat out left his marker, uh, Nemeth, to go get the guy with the ball before realizing that he probably shouldn't do that. But by that time, it was too late. And Nemeth had a wide open shot. There were a number of other headers and shots that that just missed for Kansas City. Their finishing was not amazing throughout the night, um, even though there were four goals. Uh, Christian Nemeth ended with a brace, but he had seven shots uh, uh, total. Three of them were on target. I'm sure there were a couple headers uh, he wished back. And, and of course, that that uh, 20th minute shot. So um, uh, that defense conceded four times, and I feel like it could have been six or seven times. That's the second time we've seen this uh, this this lineup. And even if Mancien and De La Mayo were unavailable due to injuries, which we will take the revs for their word at that, um, even though that was not an injury report, or reported before lineups came out. Um, I think it shows the failure of the revolution's organization to the revolution organization to build depth along that back line. Um, so yeah, I, I, really disappointing kind of results, and I think it cost them two points uh, yesterday. Yeah, and and if you want to bring up the injuries, you know, look at who Kansas City was missing: Matt Beza, Roger Espinoza, Jimmy Madronda, Rodney Wallace, Jalen Lindsay, Eric Hurtado. You know, Ily Sanchez. They had you know no shortage of injuries too. I think the the Kansas City. Sporting Kansas City certainly wins the the battle of who had more injuries going into this one. Um, you know, the Revolution had a relatively empty injury report, um, but you know those two guys were obviously they not hurt them. But it, you know, again, it just shows that you know, a couple injuries and this defense is automatically decimated. Um, it was a bit bit shocking to see how bad they were. But the problems that you saw with this back line, uh, you know, I constantly kept seeing were times when Farrell and Annie Baba would let Namath or you know whoever was the the guy up there up top. Um, get in between the two of them, and, and it was two defenders on one striker, but nobody would close them down and would just leave them open. That, that we, we've seen that from Mancian as well when he's out there, so I don't think it's necessarily just an Andy Baba Farrell problem. It's just something we constantly keep seeing. Um, and, you know, the Revolution paid for it in this game, and they could have paid for it by, you know, even more than four goals if um, Kansas City's finishing was better on a couple of chances. Yep, absolutely. Um, so, Sean, we've already talked about Juan Agadello and Caicedo, too, who I, I think we're going to, at least I owe them both an apology, I feel. Um, I, I feel like we've been kind of uh, very critical of those two uh, throughout the, the beginning parts of the season, although it's hard not to be critical of the forwards when they can't get a shot on target. But both of them coming through yesterday, both of them converting chances. Um there is another player, too, that I think Revolution fans are uh, – his stock is skyrocketing, uh, and that's Tayon Buchanan, uh, the rookie out of Syracuse. Um, he had two assists yesterday, both passes, wonderful, wonderful service into the box. Um, Sean, uh, why don't you give us your assessment of the rookie's uh, night yesterday? Well, well, first of all, the, the funny thing to me is I believe it was after the match – uh, Brad Friedel said the plan was to start Brandon Byatt right midfield uh, until those injuries happened at the center backs. And he's going to start De La Maya, but I guess De La Maya, from what we heard, had concussion-like symptoms or you know, something along those lines that kept him out. Um, so Buchanan presumably probably wasn't even going to start this game, but for a you know a, a fluke injury to De La Maya at the last minute um, that that saw him inserted into the lineup, and, and boy did you know he show uh, what he could do in this one with his pace and, and his touch and. Um, you know, just an eye for goal. Uh, so I, I thought I was really impressed with with what we saw from him, with you know being involved in all three of the the fir- all of the first three goals the Revolution had. Um, I thought it was a really good performance by by Brandon by I mean by Tejon Buchanan, and I thought he also was actually involved in um, the 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 final goal too that Juwan Jones scored by you know sending a cross into the box that led to that uh, to eventually that a handball. So um, you know very positives from Tejon Buchanan, and then a, a bit of uh, naivety where he gave up that penalty kick. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a soft penalty, but, you know, he put his arm around in front of the guy and that led to the, the penalty that Kansas City had. So um, you saw you know, a lot of positives from Buchanan and then you, you know, saw a little bit of um, you know, naivety from a guy that is still only 20 years old and, uh, you know, has some learning to do. 
The other thing, too, is that and because the revolution didn't have a lot of possession uh, because they, you know, didn't hold the ball a lot, didn't pass the ball around a lot. Uh, we we kind of have limited stats on Tayon Buchanan. And Sean, you noted before we started recording that he was five for seven passing. Uh, and, and I think if you asked, you know, the average person, you know, how many passes did he have, you'd assume at least get to double digits because you can just remember off the top of your head three or four of them that were successful. Uh, but he was five for seven passing. He had only 21 touches. So we, we really, on the whole, have not learned a ton about Buchanan, but we have seen the flashes and his potential uh, that a lot of fans are excited about. And, you know, I, I do think that he's probably earned himself a couple minutes going forward. Uh, you know, obviously two assists uh, when your team has trouble creating chances, creating two assists like he did uh, last night certainly is a major, major positive. So, um, yeah, I, I was very impressed with what he could do. Uh, I, I think the more and more we see him and Dewan Jones, who we'll talk about in a minute, um, I, I think the more and more we see them, the more and more comfortable they are. I think the first few performances we saw, you know, their their pass accuracy was a little bit off. Um, they they didn't seem to know what to do with the ball. Um, you can see that every time they come into the game or make an appearance, uh, they're doing a little bit better every single time. And in Buchanan's case yesterday, he did uh, a lot better. Uh, and and really, you know, we can credit that one point to him for that great service uh, to Caicedo. Um, but as I mentioned, Sean, I want to get your thoughts on Dewan Jones too, because he had a bit of a quiet night too, but, you know, he, he assisted the first goal, uh, I believe. Uh, I don't have my notes in front of me. I'm pretty sure he has the, he got, yeah it was Aguadelo that, no, 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 that set no. up the first goal but he was involved yeah no 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 he, he recovered the ball at midfield passed it to Caldwell and then Caldwell up to Aguadelo sorry 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 he he actually had a, a, a right a minute before that here's where I'm getting confused a minute before Juan Aguadelo missed a shot and Jones set him up on the service so I, I'm I'm misreading my notes uh but Dewan Jones had a nice pass right before the goal he had a couple of great moments and a couple of really really nice runs as well so uh Sean what was your thought on Dewan Jones yeah, you know, you mentioned it. it was, this was a game where both Jones and Buchanan really shined. And I think it was kind of set up, you know, for their styles of play. I, I mentioned last week that I thought the Revolution would kind of go with the, the all-hustle lineup. And that certainly includes Jawan Jones, the you know fastest guy on the team, and Buchanan, who is you know, almost as fast as, as Jawan Jones. Um, and, and those two players in a game like this where the Revolution were relying on quick counterattacks, um, didn't have much possession, you know, speed kills. And you saw that from, from both of them. And, you know, on top of speed killing, they also need to have a good end product. And Buchanan certainly did in his crosses. Um, and, you know, Jawan Dewan Jones finished that that playoff. Um, I'm still not sure Dewan Jones is the you know the, necessarily the most comfortable guy on the on the left flank um, playing that role. Uh, but you know for this game he was great and used his pace to to get up and down that wing and that's exactly what the Revolution needed in this one. And you know him and Buchanan were you know good complementary players for as little as they actually solved the ball, uh, making the most of it when the Revolution had those quick counterattacks. Absolutely. And and kind of moving towards the back line, uh, we've covered the glass half full. Now let's get to the glass half empty. Uh, I, I think one major point we got to talk about is Bryn Bayes' performance. Obviously, it's going to be marred a lot by that red card he got in the 55th minute, uh, putting the revolution down a man, which was kind of where it started all unwinding for the revolution. Uh, Sean, what were your thoughts on uh, Bryn Bayes' performance? Yeah, I mean, I didn't think he was having a very good game to begin with. But, you know, I go and look at that play, and I wonder what the Revolution are doing up, you know, 3-1 to one and getting that stretched. And I know, you know, it's all about the press. It's all about the press, nonstop pressing um, in a game like this for the Revolution. That's what Brad Friedel wants to do, uh, playing that high line. But it's crazy to me 
that you get stuck in that position where the Revolution have a turnover and, you know, Brandon Bay is one-on-one defending near midfield because he's the only guy that's in the Revolution half of the field. Um, so, yeah, the, the tackle was, was dumb. And I think in that situation where you're up by two goals and it's the 55th minute, you know, you're, you're better off you know, risking conceding a goal and, and tracking this guy down and trying to do as much as you can to disrupt him without fouling um, than putting your team down a man like he did there. So, I, again, I think that goes to him being a young guy and just in his second season and not being the smartest play. Um, but I didn't think he had a very good game overall. I thought that, you know, Kansas City had a lot of joy down that left flank attacking him um, before that happened. Uh, so it was, you know, not a great performance from him. And, you know, maybe he was impacted too by what it sounded like the plan was to play him at right midfield um, up until whenever that De La Maya injury that we didn't find out about until after the game occurred. Yeah, and, and I, I was going to say, I, I think as time goes on, we realize Brandon By is not really a right back. He's more of a right midfielder or a right winger. Um, and, you know, we got a performance that we kind of expected. Um, and I'm glad you hit upon the point that, you know, the Revolution back line kind of left him all up there. Edgar Castillo, uh, there was the play started uh, in Kansas City zone on a throw in. Looks like Edgar Castillo is pushing up, but it also looks like, like Annie Baba is pushing up a lot further than he should be uh, as and well. We've seen this before. Like, I, I forget which game it was, but it wasn't that long ago we were talking about the same type of situation where they you know, pushed Annie Baba way up on a throw in in Kansas City's defensive third and then they get burned. Well, and, and another thing too is. You know, this isn't a zero-zero game at home where you're you're trying to press and keep the opponent, you know, stuck in their zone. You're up three to one in the fifty-fifth minute. It feels like the only thing you have to worry about is getting beat long. I mean, to me, that that seems to be the last thing you want to happen. You want to keep your back line back, and you know, I, I don't know. I, I I cannot imagine why Brandon By was left back there all alone especially on a yellow even if he doesn't make a tackle like that you know as, as clear and obvious as it, w- it would have been but if there's any sort of foul one-on-one he's getting a yellow when he's being sent off so uh it, it was a bit interesting how that kind of all broke down and you know it wasn't a smart play by brandon by but I, I don't think it was smart by anyone involved I, i'm gonna say that um in terms of brandon by's performance before that he had three interceptions he was five for 11 passing and you know again you can't really take the stats too seriously because this is a game where the revolution we're not concerned about um you, you know keeping possession um <laughs> they, i think their their total pass accuracy of the night was 57 percent, and kansas city was 83 uh so so you know obviously the stats are, are, are a little messy but uh when you consider that all five of the 11 passes were short passes none of them were considered long by stat zone um, a lot of them also in the revolution half, uh, it really wasn't a great performance by Brandon by, um, all the way around. Um, and you know, you have to assume some of that is that he was expected to play midfield. He might not have been fully prepared to take over that right back job, but, um, overall, yeah, I, I think he was the weak link in that back line last night. Yeah, one of several weak links in that back line, but uh, perhaps the one that stood out the most. But he also was dispossessed twice, had two unsuccessful touches, um, was a bit of a turnover machine, which, again, when you're playing the way you know, Brad Friedel wants his team to play with that high line and, and pressing, um, you leave your team exposed when you turn the ball over in the areas that he was turning it over in. Let's talk about another, I'll say, weak spot in the back line. I'm sure you have some thoughts on that, Sean. But uh, more importantly, another guy we won't see next week as he was also red-carded. Uh, Jaleel Anibaba. Uh, Sean, what were your thoughts on Anibaba's performance? 
I, you know, I thought he regressed the mean. There's a reason that Andy Baba has, you know, been a journeyman in this league and can't stick around on the team. And it's not that he's, you know, a dominant center back. It's that he's a very solid center back and is a good, you know, third option on your team. But he's been the Revolution's best center back this game. And I don't think that he's actually, you know, the level that um, he should be to be a team's best center back. And this game, I thought he was really poor. There were several times where he lost his man. I think there, you know, more than one of the goals could be blamed on him. Uh, uh, header on, on the, on the, um, well, that, the header that Namath had, I believe that he was marking Namath and didn't really jump or challenge him and left him with kind of an open header. Uh, one of the earlier goals where, where I think it was Namath as well was, was in the middle and kind of split Farrell and Annie Baba. Neither of them decided to take ownership and, and go after Namath. Uh, this was, I thought, the worst performance from Annie Baba this season. And, you know, irregardless of that red card that he got, which was um, also terrible. Uh, although, I again, it's another one I kind of hesitate with because the revolution was stretched. This one was late in the game. Um, and, you know, if they had conceded a goal there while they were down a man in the game, we'd pretty much be over. So, I, you know, in some cases, I can see Annie Baba's a bit more than is taking one for a team uh, in a situational sense. Um, but even before that, I thought this was the worst game we've seen of Andy Baba this season. Um, and even if, without, if they hadn't gotten that red card, we might have seen him bench next week, um, assuming Mancian and, and De La Maya come back, because if, if they don't, the Revolution are in big trouble. Yeah, and I will say, too, the one thing I think Mancian brings is he's able to um, provide a lot of he, he takes leadership on headed headed clearances and I think Annie Baba and Farrell I'm sure the the Kansas City you know the second they saw the lineup they they knew they were going to be crossing the ball all night um, Annie Baba seven for fifteen passing he only had one block normally he's good for three or four and a couple fist pumps uh, two interceptions and two headed clearances um, when you combine that to Andrew Farrell who had uh, three interceptions eight clearances four of them headed um, Annie Baba didn't seem to be very involved defensively and, and there were a ton of chances to do that. So, um, and as you say, there were a couple of mishaps where he didn't seem to be, you know, he seemed to be a step behind. Um, so yeah, regress to the mean, um, might be harsh, but fair. Um, so, and, and we saw this last season where he started over De La Maya for a couple of months and then eventually De La Maya earned his spot back in the lineup. Um, so yeah, next week, if De La Maya and Mancien are back, you have to assume that they are in the, the lineup and you have to assume that if those two do very, very well, any Baba might've played himself out of the lineup spot. So, uh, we'll, we'll see, uh, what the lineup is, I guess really in two weeks to see where any Baba stands, but if those, uh, if those two aren't back, what the heck do you do? <laughs> <laughs> that is a that oh that's that's one of our Twitter questions. Do you want to tackle that one now? Yeah, let's, I, let's I, jump into yeah. that. <laughs> well, so so one thing that that's that was interesting to me too is that they subbed on Brian Wright at the end, and they had Wilfred Zahibo. My assumption would be that Wilfred Zahibo is going to play center back if you know Ine Baba, De La Mea, and Bansien um, uh, uh, are all not available. If one of them is available. I guess you could pair them with Andrew Farrell. I, that would be my assumption to what happens. And then right back, I guess it's Luis Caicedo. Yeah, but by default, because we all know Gabriel Somi is not going to see the field. Correct, correct. And I mean, maybe maybe because there are so many people with red cards, maybe they do move Somi up to the 18 and only play him in the case of emergency where you could put, you know, Edgar Castillo to right back or something to, to that effect. But that would be my assumption to what happens. Now, if all three of them are gone, if Mancien, Anibaba, and Adela May are all unavailable, which I can't see happening considering how these injuries kind of seem to pop up at the last second. None of them seem super serious. They, they you know, I, I, I would assume Zahibo is playing center back. I don't know what else you could do. Who else do you trust back there? I think you like go out and loan somebody at that point. <laughs> 
Oh, <laughs> any, I mean, any, any, any option is better than than Zahibo, I would say. I think if you if you have Zahibo, you might as well just forfeit the match. I don't like him playing center back. Sounds like about the worst idea you could possibly have. And I agree with you that that might be the only option. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they'll they'll have to bring back trialist um, yeah. to to put in the cheap. <laughs> I mean, if that is an option, I, I I'd be all for it. But I don't know who they would loan because they don't have a USL affiliate. So it's it's a bit of a sticky situation. I'm not sure who you could bring in to throw into a lineup on a, a one-week loan. Um, and then that also doesn't solve the problem either way of, you know, if one of them goes down, who's taking over at center back? My assumption is that Zahibo was the emergency center back yesterday, um, looking at the subs that were available. Um, yeah, there were no defensive subs there. So I, my assumption was that Caicedo was the backup left and right back and Zahibo was the backup center back. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's go into uh, kind of a goalkeeper discussion before we talk about um, what we thought of the lineup. Well, although we've kind of already revealed our hands of what we thought of the lineup. Uh, Cody Cropper concedes another four goals. Um, that makes about seven goals in the last 120 minutes or so. Uh, you know, tacking on the uh, three goals he conceded um, in Montreal. Sean, what was your uh, thoughts on Cody Cropper's performance yesterday? I mean, I didn't think he was particularly good, but I also don't know that I can blame him too much on any of the goals. The one they had the best chance of saving was actually the penalty kick that was right down the middle. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I again, um, you know, Cody Cropper made a you know, big error last week. I don't think there was anything in this game that was completely terrible um, that you can blame him for. Uh, you know, never good when a goalkeeper lets in, in four um, goals, and his distribution this game was not up to par from what we've seen in some of the other games. Uh, but really, I don't know how you can put too much blame for him, given how this game played out and given that he was you know, down two men for part of it. Yeah, and... and- I will say he did have that great save where uh, he kind of tipped the ball and it was rolling along the goal line. And uh, I think it was Gerso jumps into the ball and Cropper basically with both hands is able to just keep it out. Uh, so he, he did have a, a spectacular save yesterday to keep one off the board. Um, but overall, I, I thought he looked a little uncomfortable on some plays. If you go back and you just look at the goals, I, I didn't really notice this until I saw a highlight package this morning. But if you go back and you look at the goals, it looks like on every single one, he just jumps up in the air, kind of like he's doing like a jumping jack. And I've never seen him do that before. So I don't know if, you know, he, he's got some bad memories of Montreal where, you know, there was a ball that was kind of slightly above his kind of catch range. They tipped up in the air and it went in um, that, you know, now he has to kind of leave his feet and jump a little bit. I don't know. He looked a little uncomfortable on all those goals. Um, not the penalty kick, but the, the ones from the run of play, I think on all three, he kind of jumps up a little bit and then he has to kind of jolt to the side and it looks very, very uncomfortable. So um, I think on paper, obviously four goals conceded, he's going to, you know, it, it's not going to look good for him, but uh, he did have some moments yesterday. Um, Sean, what are we thinking in terms of who's starting in Philadelphia? I think it's a toss up. I think with a full week uh, between games, there's a, there's a chance that we, they do switch to Matt Turner. Um but if I was guessing, I would say Cody Cropper, but I'm not at all confident. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised either way. Yeah, I, I'm going to agree with you there, too. I'm going to lean Cropper. I, I think that if – I think it says a lot that uh, Friedel stuck with Cropper. Normally, after a goalkeeper makes a mistake like he did against Montreal, we see a switch, um, and we didn't. So I, I think he has a lot of trust in Cropper. And I, I think, too, you can't blame Cropper. Really, for any of those goals that went in, a lot were kind of reaction saves. And as, as you say, he got a hand on the penalty kick. That was probably the best one that he could have saved. So yeah, overall, I, I, I think we'll see Cropper again. Um, I don't know – how much more of a leash he has. I think if Philadelphia scores three, four, um, I think then we might see Matt Turner in the future, but we'll find out. 
Sean, what was your thoughts on the lineup? Uh, obviously, a lot of switching after the uh, catastrophe uh, against Montreal. Um, Luis Caicedo, Diego, and Bunbury all relegated to the bench. Uh, Mancien and De La Maya moved out of the 18, both uh, apparently because of injury. Uh, and then into the lineup, uh, Tayon Buchanan, uh, Dewan Jones, who we both we've already talked about. Dewan Jones is not even in the 18 for the last two games, hopping back into the lineup and uh, playing pretty well. And then, uh, of course, JFC's debut and Brendan Bay. Um, any reactions in terms of uh, the, the the lineup and anything you would have done differently? Yeah, to, to be honest, it's, it's about what I would have expected had you told me that De La Mea, um, and Mancien were out. I, I kind of figured that this is what we're going to see with, you know, like I mentioned last week, the, the speedy wingers out there, the young guys, um, and playing kind of a different shape than what we saw the past two games, and, and that was the case here. Um, you know, what I would have thought if, you know, if there wasn't for all the injuries, I thought Castillo might, you know, get a rest since he's just coming off of an injury. He's 32 years old and had you know, played 90 minutes Wednesday and Saturday. Um, it seems like he would have been a candidate for a rest, but but no, obviously he didn't get a rest. Um, you know, Aguadillo, if you've listened to, to the Far Post podcast, they were talking about how gassed he looked after Wednesday's game. So I thought he might be a guy that would get a rest. And he certainly didn't look gassed in this game. So, um, you know, it makes sense they didn't rest him. And he performed a lot better than I, you know, had expected based on his recent performances. Uh, so that makes sense. Um, but I, you know, given the injuries, the, the only thing that maybe surprised me a little bit is that Luis Caicedo didn't find his way into the lineup. Yeah, that was probably outside of Mancien. That was probably the biggest head scratcher for me. I, I would have thought that they would have found a spot for Luis Caicedo, even if it was for Scott Caldwell. Um, not to say that Caldwell had a poor game. He actually had a very, very nice pass to Aguadillo, as we said. Um, but, I, and I guess Caldwell is the captain when Mancien is out. Um, but Luis Caicedo had been playing very, very well, in my opinion, uh, the past couple of games. Um, my assumption is that he was just the backup left slash right back. Um, that That is my guess to why he was moved to the bench and they kind of expect him to go in at some point. Um, but that, that was a bit of a head scratcher too. Um, the other thing too that I'm surprised about is that Brandon Bay was originally supposed to start at right midfield. He moved to, to um, right back uh, when you know uh, when when uh, De La Maya was hurt. Uh, but Teal Bunbury did not get the start at right midfield, which I would have thought he would have gotten the start over um, Buchanan. So I, I thought that was a bit of an interesting uh, twist that Buchanan and Brandon By were above Teal Bunbury in terms of uh, the depth chart for right midfield. Um, I'm not sure. We, we have seen him there play a couple times, kind of mixed results throughout the season. Um, so I, I, he did end up coming into the game, uh, I believe, for Teon Buchanan anyway. Uh, maybe that was just a rest factor uh but I, I thought that was pretty interesting and I, I don't know if that speaks to uh that's due to um bunbury's uh recent poor form in terms of uh shot accuracy um the one other thing i will say too is that i thought it was interesting brian wright came on when you had christian Pena and diego fagundes on the bench um it was tied at that point i guess they wanted their best striker on the field at that time uh but I don't know. I thought that was a bit interesting, uh, all things considered. That, And maybe, again, it, it's because they played three games in eight days. Uh, but those were kind of the three interesting moves uh, that kind of had me scratching my head and uh, I'm probably reading way too much into. No, and, and as far as Bunbury goes, he'd only played 60 minutes each of the last two games. He came out you know, around the 60-minute mark. So I, he should have been rested if that was or at least you know fit enough to to start this game if that was the issue i think it was you know a matter of his finishing has been really poor lately his confidence seems down um you know bring somebody else in and i, I get that um as far as the the brian wright sub 
Um, you know, I, I imagine they wouldn't have made that sub had they known Annie Baba was going to get ejected immediately afterwards. Um, but, you know, more importantly, it was interesting to me that they did that. And then they put Juan Aguadelo, who, again, we talked about how, you know, people talked about on the Far Post podcast that he looked gas after the last game. You know, in the 88th minute, you're subbing him and you're subbing him Brian Wright for Dewan Jones and, and putting Aguadelo as, you know, kind of your, your left midfielder and asking him to track back in the game where he's been really active. Um, that was the, the real interesting decision, the real interesting part of that decision to me that that was the move they went to to stick Brian right up top. I kind of get that, you know, get some fresh legs out there, but you're, you know, you're moving Juan Aguadelo to a, you know, pretty difficult spot to, to cover uh, when the team is down a man at that point. Um, so it shows a lot of faith in him. I, you know, looking at the bench, I don't really know what your other option would have been. Um, I think both Pania and Fagundes uh, can be defensive liabilities, um, but it was, you know, interesting to see that. And again, speaks you know, talking about like Wilfred Zahibo speaks to how little confidence there is in him that you wouldn't have tried to bring him on to try to like lock down the game in the center of the field. Yeah. And before we move on to Twitter questions, do I, I also want to kind of express my uh, frustration that Brian Wright gets called in and we've really only seen him come on, you know, a few minutes here, a few minutes there. Um, I feel like at this point, I'd rather him just stay down at, at Birmingham uh, where he's actually getting minutes in uh, and impressing for, uh, for Jay heaps. And, uh, but I don't know. Uh, hopefully we get a start from him eventually. I thought it would have been uh, one of these last three games, uh, but uh, strikers were rotated without him getting any significant minutes. So hopefully we get to see some Brian Wright in the future. Uh, Sean, you ready for some Twitter questions? Let's jump into it. Uh, Randy asks us, did Mancian not even being in the 18 help us, hurt us, or not make a difference? You know, defensively, it probably hurt them a little bit. Um, but because I'm assuming Buchanan wasn't going to start if Manson had played, um, it helped him out that uh, that change forced Buchanan onto the field um, because Buchanan was one of the offensive MVPs in this one. So um, for that reason alone, for the uh, unintentional forcing Buchanan onto the field, I think it helped the revolution because um, I'm not sure that Bai would have had as much success as Buchanan did. Yeah, I will say if Manskin was available in the 18, I think it would have certainly helped where, you know, when Brandon Bai went out, you could put him into the game, move Farrell over to right back. And I think Manskin would have been able to uh, give you a little bit of cover on headers and crosses uh, coming into the box. So uh, I I do think it hurt a little bit. Um, I know Manskin is, uh, you know, not having the the best season, uh, but overall, I I think he would have been a clear upgrade from uh, the center backs in that uh, back four that we saw last night. Uh, Cobb Braft asks us two questions. Uh, one is Juan Fernando Caicedo, the real deal. Was he just missing the service he needed? And two, what are your thoughts on Taeyeon Buchanan? He looked amazing. Um, we've already talked about Taeyeon Buchanan a little bit, so uh, let's tackle the JFC question. Uh, do you think he's the real deal, Sean? Uh, my verdict is still out for me. This was a more promising game, but you know, it was a nice move on that first goal. But again, he had a lot more time. Um, than you would expect someone to usually have in that situation. Uh, you know, he made some good runs. He had some nice passes. Um, this was a very positive game going forward for him, but it was also a very weird and unique game, as we discussed earlier. So I, I, I would say in my mind, the verdict is still out. And, you know, worth mentioning that the, the center back that he was going against a lot, um, who was from Rwanda from and whose name I will not be able to pronounce, so I'm going to just skip that, uh, was a 22-year-old that was making his first ever MLS start. Um, so I think that probably helps him out a bit too to be going against him and not against a guy like Matt Beazer. Um, we might have seen a different game if Matt Beazer had been out there instead of a guy making his, his first MLS start. Um, but, you know, a lot of positives from Juan Fernando Caicedo. I'm a lot more positive on what he can bring to this team now. Um, I'm just curious to see him do it in a different situation because I do think the way this game played out was was very unique. 
Yeah, I, I took a lot of positives too away from his performance. Um, as I said earlier, you know, the fewer touches he has, the better. You want to just get him the service, and he's going to try to put it on frame. And we really haven't seen him. This was his first game where he got a shot on goal. Uh, so it's great to see him his ability to finish. It's great to see his ability to get shots on target. So uh, is he the real deal? I am leaning yes. I am leaning the over on five goals for Juan Fernando Caicedo. A total flip flop from Wednesday. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I would say very positive. And in terms of Buchanan too, um, I, I still am a little more uh, bearish on him. Uh, I still think he's a pretty raw player, but we did see the flashes that he has. And, you know, he created plays and that's more than you can say about anyone else. So, you know, I think if you're one of these play the kids fans, you know, Dewan Jones and Tayon Buchanan certainly are making a very, very strong case. Actually, we're going to lead right into the next question now that I'm saying this out loud. Uh, Mohammed Hussein asks us, do you think Jones and Tayon on the wings is something to grow on and continue to use in the coming games? Uh, and just to finish the point that I was talking about, you know, they're creating chances. And I, I think that's a thing the revolution of struggle with time and time again. They have another road game, so they might come out in a similar formation against Philadelphia. So I, I would expect to see both of them getting more minutes going forward. Um, although the last time I said that about Dewan Jones, he was dropped out of the 18. But uh, so, yeah, overall, I'm going to say yes. And, and I say they start next game. Yeah, I mean, it, it works in a game where the Revolution expects to be on the back foot, where you're going against a team that's going to hold a lot of possession and they're going to need to counterattack. You know, again, those two guys have a ton of pace, and that's something you can't teach. Um, you know, even though I think they both are, are raw and have some growing to do, um, and you know, certainly are very young, so there's plenty of time for that, and you'd expect that. Um, you know, when the Revolution play this type of game, they're perfect for it. When the Revolution go back home and they're playing against you know a weaker team that's you know, going to bunker in, I'm not sure they're perfect for that situation. I don't know that they have the skill to to beat a, a defense that's you know contained back there and isn't trying to press forward. Um, you know that's maybe where you need a Pania or Diego Fagunas, and even though they haven't shown it this year, where those are guys that can create chances against defense like that. Uh, again, that's been the Revolution's problem all year is, is creating chances against a defense like that. Um, they've also had problems creating chances against a team like this that's pushing forward and, and you know, trying to lead the initiative and attack. Um, but yeah, I think this is something we're going to see a lot more of going forward when the Revolution are on the road um, and playing teams that are good in possession. And you know, maybe we're not going to see it when the Revolution go back home and are playing teams where you know the Revolution would expect to be the aggressor and, and win that game on their own terms rather than you know countering. Yeah, and, and you more or less have answered the next question. Uh, Zachary Grimes asks us, can the Revs live with being a team who is dominated possession-wise every match, but they're able to score and get results because of the way they press? Or uh, will this just bring them bad form and results? And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there that, you know, they're going to have to learn to play with possession at home, and they're going to have to learn how to, you know, create possession when teams bunker down, because we've seen this at home where teams just kind of sit back and they wait for the revolution to turn the ball over and then hit them on the fast break, uh, which the Revs traditionally have been terrible at. I, I think they had been improving uh, a little bit this season. Uh, but, Sean, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't think this is a formula that's going to get the Revolution to the playoffs. I think it's an option that you use in the right situation and can work well. Um, you know, there are teams in MLS that have been successful kind of skirting possession and, and more focused on uh, you know turnovers and, and counterattacking. The Red Bulls were very successful last year. I won the Supporters' Shield as a team that primarily – um, played the high press and, and, and counterattacked and did very well at that. Um, but they also were a team that found ways to, to score when that wasn't working, when there were teams that were bunkered in and that they couldn't counterattack against. Um, and this Revolution team just hasn't done that. Um, so, yeah, the, you know, the press and the counterattacking style that the Revolution played um, you know, can be your primary form and can be successful, um, you know, can be very successful when you're 
in the right situation. But there are going to be games where it doesn't work, um, and the Revolution don't seem to have the talent to to find a way to win those games when you know the press and the counterattack isn't leading to chances. Yeah, and not just that too. I mean, if you look at this game, you know, this looks like a quote unquote positive result in the in the sense that. You know, if you had told me before the game that the Revolution are going to tie this game, I probably would have been very happy with it. So, you know, the result probably is quote unquote positive here. Um, but you have to look at the, you know, margin of error here. Um, the Revs had 10 shots. Kansas City had 19. Um, the Revs had seven of those 10 shots on target and Kansas City had six for 19 on target. So it was kind of like flip-flop where you know if you told me the revs had seven of ten shots on target i never would have believed you you know on a on a bad night you know on a night that we can kind of expect from the revolution some of these shots miss a little bit you know some of these shots are you know just a little bit in front uh, or you know over the bar or just wide of the post um so you know in order to play this type of game that they played yesterday, they have to really capitalize on their chances and they have to be accurate at shooting. And those are two things that I really don't think we've seen a lot of the revolution. So um, even if they play this way on the road, um, it doesn't guarantee good results regardless. And, and not to mention too, if they fall behind, you know, if they, if they were trailing Kansas city at any point in this game, Kansas city wouldn't sitting back and, and waiting for them to make a move. And it's just not a, a formula for success. So it, it's just, it's like in the water boy when uh, the other team just figures they need to just kneel down because the only way that uh, Adam Sandler's team is they just keep getting interceptions and running the ball back or keep forcing fumbles and they keep scoring off of turnovers. So they just decide to kneel the ball down and let, you know, I don't remember the name of the college that they're playing at, but they essentially make their offense score points and they're like, ah, we're screwed. Like that's literally the revolution. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, Kansas City is a great team, but this is not, you know, Kansas City's best lineup that was out there by any stretch. And I think it's perfectly fair to point that out. Again, you know, Beasler wasn't out there, and they're starting this 22-year-old who just came from the Rwanda Premier League um, that, that has only made one other previous appearance, and it was as a sub. Um, their left back in this game, and I don't know why Sinovic didn't start, but the left back in this game was a you know central midfielder by trade who they you know, signed as a designated player that, for some reason, they put in a left back in this one. Um, they had a 16-year-old in midfield, albeit you know one that's been very impressive, but still a, you know, a, a very young guy. Um, out there it's just it was not the best lineup from Kansas City by any stretch and Kansas City you know since that let down in the Champions League in the CONCACAF Champions League hasn't been playing at their best so you know yes it's fantastic that the revolution went to Kansas City results wise and got a draw um, but I, I you know it's tough for me to take there's a lot of positives to take away from this one but it's tough for me to you know look at this game and say the revolution figured it out that's for sure Yep. Yep. Uh, I, I won't lie. During the majority of your answer there, I was, I was thinking back, trying to hope that I remembered I got that reference right. I haven't seen The Water Boy in years, so I apologize if I got any part of that wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's how that movie goes. I don't know. Um, Sean, uh, Barbara asked us, were the revs Toledoed or did they just fall apart? Um, I'll also say she asked us our thoughts on Cropper and if we will see Tawan, Juan, Juan, and Day Juan together. Um, we've kind of answered those questions, but I, I just wanted to say that last question out loud. Uh, so, yeah, Sean, uh, how much of an impact did the refereeing have? I mean, I think they, they fell apart. Um, I think the refereeing, you know, I don't think the refereeing decisions were that terrible. I think Brandon Bayes' red card um, was a red card, and, you know, like you said, he was already on a yellow card. Um, I think the, the penalty kick that Buchanan gave up was soft, but also, you know, I've seen, I've seen less called um you know that was a bit harsh but at that point the revolution were already down a man and i think kansas city was you know 
probably going to find a way to equalize this game one way or the other. Um, you know, the Revolution got a bit lucky on the penalty kick they earned. It was a penalty, but it was, you know, Juan Aguadela was running away from goal and kicked the ball up and it happened to hit a guy in the arm. Um, it was the right call, but it was, you know, a bit lucky there. And, you know, that led to, the, to one of their goals. Um, and, you know, the Anibaba red card, I don't think you can really have any complaints over. So, yeah, you might feel like that, you know, that one penalty kick they were a little hard done by on, but I, I don't think it was the referee that cost the Revolution three points in this game. Um, you know, it was it, it was hard to blame this one on the ref. The Revolution, I think, co- collapsed. And what was, the, what was the second half of the question? Uh, it was, uh, did or were the Revs Toledo'd or did they just fall apart? And then she asked about Cropper and will we see, do you, are you just saying this so I have to say this out loud again? Uh, will we see Taiwan more, Taiwan... <laughs> Juan, Juan, and Dewan together. Um, I think we'll I'm going to call that the Dewan line. I I think we'll see them perhaps next week, um, but I don't think it's going to be the everyday lineup from the Revolution for the reasons that I I said earlier. Okay, yeah, no, I I agree with you. And and getting back to the refereeing, um, I think that you can make a um, I, the 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 penalty kick was. Very weak. I will say that. Uh, I, I thought that was a pretty terrible call uh, overall. I know you said that um, Buchanan, you know, needs to know better, but I, I really didn't think there was enough there to, you know, make that penalty call. And the other thing too is, I guess he waved it off as no penalty kick, and then he changed his mind in the heat of the moment. And I don't think they went to VAR, which I thought was kind of strange. So that call was overall very strange on the whole. But I, I, there wasn't a whole lot else that I, I can look back on that match and. and think that the referee was trying to uh get it he, he was you know I, I don't i don't think he has a bad relationship with brad friedel like some var officials um and and another thing too is that you could say that you know what was more of a penalty or potentially a penalty if he was in the box was there was a foul on uh kellen Rowe in the i think eighth minute where he's he makes his way around carlos gill and carlos gill looks like kind of trips him from behind or, or you know makes a lot more contact than buchanan did and you know Rowe goes down in the box i'm sure that's why they didn't call it a foul because they're you know wasn't enough for a penalty but um you know if, if the referee was kind of out for uh the, the revolution and brad friedel so to speak I, I think that would have been a penalty that was much more of a penalty uh than what we saw in the second half on the buchanan foul so uh, friedel, friedel certainly wasn't happy with the refereeing based on his comments after the game but <laughs> oh was he oh yeah he said that ours was a penalty and theirs wasn't right yeah, yeah and, he's, and, he's, and he said toledo really needs to have a review of that game um, then he said something about how we reflect after the game, and the referee should too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, did, but he, did, he didn't want to make excuses. He said so. <laughs> yes, I, did, I don't want to make excuses, but um, if I did want to make excuses, it's the referee. Uh, James Downing asks us: uh, Revs goals mainly came from uh, SKC's uh, defending. Uh, has the offense figured it out, or was this more to do with uh, SKC's terrible defending? And he points out too uh, that uh, Sinovic was sitting out for a uh, midfielder. Uh, and he also points out that uh, how about that over under five goals for JFC, which I, I deserve that. I deserve that. I I took my victory lap way too soon. Uh, but uh, Sean, uh, has the the offense figured it out, or was it a uh, bad night for Kansas City? You know, a little bit of both. It was a bad night for Kansas City. It was a game that played to you know the Revolution's strengths. Um, but you know, guys that were missing good chances scored in this game. So you know, having Aguadelo gain confidence, and I think he certainly did in this game. Having Juan Caicedo gain confidence, and he certainly did in this game, um, is a huge benefit positive for the Revolution. Um, but to say the Revolution offense has completely figured it out, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far yet. Um, again, like I, like I've been hitting at home, this is a, a very unique match 
um, that we saw. And I don't think many games are going to play out like this one did. Uh, so, you know, we'll see what happens next week and we'll see what happens going forward. Uh, but it's undoubtedly a positive that, you know, two of your strikers that were really struggling for confidence picked up a lot of confidence in this game. Yeah, I think, too, it, the the biggest positive going forward is that Caicedo has kind of gotten over that hump, and Juan Agadello also uh, has gotten on the score sheet, too. I think that's going to do wonders for them going forward. I think we just need Teal Bunbury to get one in, uh, and then the goals will start pouring in. Um, James Dunning also asks us, uh, obligatory, where can the Revs get players like Nimeth uh, and Rowe? <laughs> Rowe and uh, Sinovic. Uh, that Rowe to Susie to name a goal was sweet. Uh, Sean, where can we get these guys? It's always interesting to to watch a player score against their former team and see how they react. And uh, Namath was not holding back on his celebrations. Let's put it that way. I thought it was also a little bit awkward when uh, you know, Namath kind of hit his head when he walked behind Friedel during the halftime interview. Um, but you know, as we've talked about on this podcast before, Namath's a fantastic player. Uh, Brad Friedel couldn't find a way to make him work in the system, uh, and you know. Like we've said, maybe they should have found a way to make the system work for Namath instead. Um, but, you know, he's a phenomenal player, and I thought he had a really good game. Um, you know, Kellen Rose still isn't having the best year for Kansas City. Um, I'm sure he's happy to be on a better team uh, than the Revolution, but he, he's been in and out of the lineup. Um, he had a decent game in this one. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> where can the Revolution find players like that? We, we find ourselves asking uh, that question a lot. The Sinovic, um, <laughs> which was, you know, many years ago that the Revolution cut Sasanovic and waived him, um, you know, at the time when you could make the case he was the best left back in the Revolution roster. Um, and, you know, how much the Revolution have struggled to find a left back since then, uh, that remains to me the, you know, one of the most shocking decisions of Mike Burns' tenure to, to waive a young left back that was playing really well um, and then pick up, uh, I'm blanking on the guy's name, it was another uh, kind of, you know, no-name center back that they added to the roster instead that it, whose name is... is escaping me right now but um that goes down in the history books as one of the more bizarre decisions and you know i've heard all sorts of rumors of why it happened none of which i've ever been able to confirm uh but to to get rid of a young left back like that that you drafted and that was playing really well for you is you know a shocking decision that has hurt the revolution for many years and it still bothers you uh, it, it bothers me, and I know it bothers uh, other people. <laughs> I know Julian Cardillo is someone that always mentions that that odd decision, um, but it's just, it's just crazy that that was something that happened. Um, one quick note, too, uh, just to circle back. Uh, the college and the water boys, the South Central Louisiana State University Mud Dogs. So I just wanted to let that uh, be known for the record, for the record. Um, another thing too, that you, you mentioned Namath, I thought Roe was absolutely animated yesterday. You could tell how badly he wanted three points in that game oh, yeah. and he clearly wanted to stick it to the revs. I don't think I've ever seen that much passion out of Kellen Rowe, uh, you know, from his tenure with the revolution, certainly not for a few years. So, um, I mean, he was all over the place. Um, he, him and, uh, Carlos Hill were, uh, fighting back and forth. He was yelling at the referee. Um, he, he very clearly was, uh, trying to stick it to new England, um, yesterday. And, um, yeah, yeah, they they certainly seem like they wanted the three points. So if there's one little positive we can take away, it's that they didn't get it. So uh, John Trainer asks us, do you think the Revs should stick with the 4-4-2 against Philadelphia? I think it looked good until Bai got sent off. Yeah, it, and again, Philadelphia is, is a different team. Um, I kind of think you have to stick with it because you know nothing else has been working. Um, I'm not convinced it works. Um, it'll, it'll work long term, like I said. Uh, Philadelphia, the good news for the Revolution is they have a midweek game, so they should be you know a bit tired in that one. Um, but you know, Philadelphia is a very different team than Sporting Kansas City. Philadelphia has had some struggles this year. Um, I, you know, they've been good at times, they've been bad at times. I, I don't know what to expect out of that game, but I think that is you know you stick with what worked um, because I'm not sure what other option you have. 
Yep. Uh, and, and one more formation question. Um, this actually comes from Facebook. Michael St. John, uh, he, he made a comment. He said he, think the, he thinks the answers to the issues with the back line is to go to a 3-5-2 formation. Uh, two defensive midfielders will allow Carlos Hill to push up and play central underneath two for, forwards. Uh, and those midfielders can also help with the three men in the back. The 4-4-2 is too flat. Um, and he, he also uh, suggests that maybe working out Brandon By as a defensive midfielder. Um, he says Caicedo and Caldwell can cover a lot of grounds and do the dirty work um, but overall their skill set is terrible his, his words not mine so uh sean what are your thoughts on a 352 and then what are your thoughts about maybe moving brandon by to the center of the field so i'm a big fan of a, a 352 formation and when the revolution played it back in the, the mid-2000s it was you know phenomenal i think the the revolution's defenders their center backs in particular their the shape um is too poor uh you know it's a very thin roster on center backs, as we've talked about. And to, to play a 3 5 2, you're just exacerbating that problem. Um, if you play a 3 5 2, you're kind of wasting uh, Edgar Castillo, unless it's really a 5 3 2. Because, you know, Edgar Castillo, what does he play in a, in a 3 5 2 unless he's your left winger? Um, and so I'm not really sure that makes a lot of sense. It, you know, I don't think this team at all is constructed for a 3 5 2 formation. And I think it would just exacerbate their defensive problems uh, because the Revolution keep getting beat on the wings and, and cut inside and to take away the, the guys that are defending the wings entirely um, and then ask you know guys like Buchanan and Jones if you're going to put them as the wingers to cover that much ground. Um, you know, I, I just don't think that works with the way the team is currently constructed. And then, you, you know, Brandon Baez, defensive midfielder, I don't see his skill set as fitting that position at all. I don't think he's got the positional awareness to, to play that role. Um, and I do think that Luis Caicedo, you know, when he's playing well like he was a couple weeks ago, or, you know, just last weekend, I should say, a weekend ago, um, you know, is, is great at that role. And I think Scott Caldwell is good at that role. And I do think the Revolution can benefit from signing a, you know, truly dominant presence to play back there next to the two of them, um, you know, whichever one is in the lineup. Uh, but, Brandon Bay in that role, I don't think would work. Well, and the other thing too about Brandon Bay is I think one of the best things that he can do is, you know, if you put him at right midfield and you get him up the the, the pitch, he can go one-on-one with some players and he can service, you know, some low crosses. Not a lot of crosses have been successful so far, uh, but we saw last year when, um, you know, they, they did kind of run this 5-3-2 uh, a couple games, I think in May or June, you know, Brandon Bay would push up a little bit on the wing uh, and kind of take on guys one-on-one. If you put him in the middle, I, I don't know, you, you kind of lose that aspect of it. So I, I think I'd prefer him kind of being a wing guy as opposed to a defensive midfielder type. So I, I agree with you there. I, I don't think he'd be necessarily terrible at defensive midfield, um, but I, I just think you want him playing along the right side. Um, in terms of the 3-5-2, I think you're right about the roster construction. I'm not totally against a, a, a 3-5-2, but um, it's, yeah, I, I think Andrew Farrell would have to be one of those three. And then, you know, what, it would be Mancien and De La Mayer or Annie Baba. Um, you're, you're kind of wasting Edgar Castillo. There's really not a whole lot of space for him unless you play him at left mid, which I guess you could, but uh, it, it it brings up more questions than answers with the way the roster is constructed in this current form. Uh, so I agree with everything you said there. Um, James Downing did ask us too, and, and we've already kind of tackled this one. Um, <laughs> who, uh, who can the Revs start in the defense next week? Um, and we kind of covered that one already. I don't know if you have any other thoughts about um, who you want to put along the back line, but my assumption is it kind of totally depends on, you know, which center backs are available. My guess is Andrew Farrell is staying at center back, and then hopefully one of them is healthy enough, and then we're going to see a uh, similar Luis Caicedo, uh, Edgar Castillo uh, on the outside backs. Uh, anything to add, Sean? No, I think that's right. I just think if you're in a situation where somehow all of those guys are out, and I think seeing now that um, somebody had said Manchin had plantar fasciitis, 
um, which can keep a guy out for more than one week. Um, and certainly with, you know, concussive symptoms or whatever it was that De La May had, I, that's, you know, the one thing that I read that it could have been, um, you know, if, if that's more serious, that could certainly keep a guy out more, more than one week. Um, you know, if, if you're stuck with, you know, trying to fill somebody in at center back, I'd almost rather see Caldwell play back there than Zahibo just because I think he's positionally more sound. And I think Zahibo, you know, he has the height for it. Um, but I think that could be disastrous and, uh, you know, maybe you put Caldwell back there and then you put Caicedo in the midfield and the real Caldwell was playing, um, you know, and, and maybe you put Dewan Jones at right back uh, to make that work. But um, if that's the case and the Revolution can't somehow, you know, miraculously sign a defender uh, midweek, um, you know, they're in a lot of trouble. Haven't they said, too, that Brandon, Brandon Bai can play center back, too? I, I, I feel like they've said that Luis Caicedo and Brandon Bai have played center back at certain points, too, which I have no interest in seeing either one of those move there, so... Yeah, it's a bit shaky. Again, where's Giles Phillips? You know, every week, <laughs> we, uh, reportedly Giles Phillips. Um, you know, we, we we never know. Trialists, you know, we we, we didn't know his secret identity. Uh, so, um, but I, it brings you back to the question that we've asked multiple times: Why didn't this team re-sign Christian Machado? He could play all along the back line and defensive midfield. It would have provided great depth for the Revolution. <laughs> oh, I know yeah. I've made that joke before. I know I'm stealing my own joke. Where's that? Um, where's Josh Smith these days? Uh, actually, I looked it up. Uh, we'll 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 get there later. Uh, but I, I did look it up. He's playing fourth division soccer in Germany. Uh, so and Samoya's over in like Nicaragua in the first division there. So yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Phil Fleischer asks us, uh, or no, he says I think uh, Farrell should remain at center back for a while until they get their heads straight. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, let's talk about that first. Uh, Andrew Farrell, uh, center back or right back? Uh, right back, I, I would say for sure. Um, you know, he's if they need to fill him in at center back, he has shown at times he can be good at it, and he's shown other times that it's you know not his best position. Um, I think the Revolution are much better off if Andrew Farrell is at right back. Um, you know, assuming all their center backs are healthy, even though you know De La May and Mancian and Andy Baba have had their you know their poor moments this season, um, I'd be more comfortable with the two of them out there and have Andrew Farrell at right back. I don't think Andrew Farrell is a you know calming presence that fixes their center back problem by moving inside. Yeah, and I think I don't hate Farrell at center back. I certainly wouldn't prefer it. I think he's a very good emergency center back, um, but we've seen him at center back too many times. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, he can fill in in the case of injury and suspensions. I'm sure we'll see him there, you know, at least next game. Um, but, yeah, he also asks, uh, what do you th- uh, do you think Brad regrets not putting a single defender on the bench? What was he thinking? Um, I think now we have a little bit of context that there weren't any defenders other than Gabriel Somi, who will never see the light of day again, uh, available. Um, so, yeah, uh, John, I, I, I will add kind of a tack on to this question. After right after I answer it, um, let's speculate. Uh, baseless speculation. Um, do you think something happened with Mancien? I, th- there were some people on Twitter that that seemed to say that he argued with a fan after the game, and he seemed very upset after the game. Do you think something happened with Mancien where he wasn't available for this game, or do you think it's a legitimate injury? You know, I've, I've heard the plantar fasciitis. I think that was what Brad Feldman said during the broadcast. Um, I tend to believe it's probably that. Um, yeah, I did hear the thing about you know him arguing with a fan about not going over and, and you know, shaking hands or whatever after the game, and that's disappointing. But I, my guess is that this one really is just an injury. Um, you know, it left the Revs so hamstrung. Although, I, you know, I, again, I think, um, I believe after the game, Brad Friedel said it would have been you know, De La Maya starting. Um, so I don't know when this injury took place and, and why we didn't hear about it till you know at the time of the game. Um, but my my hunch is that it was actually a legitimate injury um, and that you know that wouldn't have been enough for Friedel to 
uh, you know, that, that one interaction wouldn't have been enough for, for Friedel to, to take away one of his center backs in a game where they, they sorely needed one. Yep. Phil also says he's cynically dubbed Mancien Dielna 2.0, uh, which, you know, I, I don't think he's there just yet in terms of uh, he hasn't been buried in the depth chart. Uh, he's still getting starts. But uh, Dielna, another high price signing from England who isn't panning out exactly how we had planned. Uh, I, I, I don't think that's that comparison is totally, totally baseless. Uh, so uh, and Dielna also, I don't know if you saw this, Sean, out of the 18 uh, with Portland. So he is a uh, second MLS team that he's fallen out of favor with. Not surprising. Uh, already. We're not even in May yet. So Why did they uh, sign him is the question. Why, why would you trade for, for that guy? What did they see that we didn't see? I mean, he was a – if you kind of expect there's a falling out with the coach, maybe you kind of take him in as a, you know – reclamation project or you know maybe you think if he can turn his attitude around you know maybe there's that potential but you know it yeah i, I don't know i don't know i think everyone in new england is just kind of nodding there like yep 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 i mean he certainly and, and he has a powerful left leg we talked about a little bit last year where he had some qualities he just can't piece it together and you know he he he, he is the heart of a striker as brian o'connell said last year he doesn't really want to play defense and no he, when he looks kind of important he yeah no, he, when he played left back he Looked even more disinterested. <laughs> right. Wanted Portland, to attack. Portland's season also not going that well. So I'd imagine that when he's just on a bad team, he's not putting in 100%. So that's just how it is. Um, Phil Fleischer did ask one more question. Um, is, is Bunbury Dunsky uh, or was this a matchup choice? Uh, and we kind of talked about Bunbury being excluded from the uh, starting 11 and, and being behind Buchanan uh, and and uh, Brandon Bay at right midfield. Um, Sean, do you think Bunbury has taken a couple of notches down the depth chart or do you think this was just a uh, situational thing? I think he's taken a couple of notches down in the depth chart, but he's certainly not in the doghouse. He came off the bench in this one. Um, you know, I, I think there'll be plenty of opportunities for him going forward to you know, re-earn a spot and you know, play up striker or, or, or right mid. Um, but I definitely think he's taken a few notches down in the depth chart. And I, you know, for the reasons we talked about earlier, the finishing has just been terrible. Yep. Um, and I, I will add, too, that I think he is – I wouldn't say he's done. Certainly, JFC has kind of earned a spot up there. I think they want to see what they have in Brian Wright uh, before they send him back down to Birmingham, although maybe not considering how few minutes he's getting. But there's a bit of a logjam up there up top. So I think Bunbury is going to be moved into a backup role, and we're going to see him come on you know, 20, 30 minutes here or there at striker or at right mid. Um, we might not see him in the starting lineup for a while. That is my guess uh, if I had to – if I had to say anything, but I think that's just because JFC and Buchanan have had really, really solid games the past, uh, well, really just yesterday. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think Bunbury's starting for a, a few games. I think one terrible game from Juan Aguadelo or Juan Caicedo could see Bunbury back in the lineup, though. Yeah, but then you also have Pena and Fagundes. Fair point. <laughs> I mean, there's just so many people, and that's where they were playing the last two games. So, I mean, he, he does shuffle the deck when there's a, when there are poor performances. So, uh, you know, do I think we'll see him before June? Absolutely. Do I think we'll see him in the next three games? Uh, probably not. I think Diego Fagundes and I think Christian Pena get chances before we see Teal Bunbury get a chance, at least up top. You know, if there's, you know, if Teon Buchanan has a terrible game next week, you know, maybe they move Teal Bunbury back. Um, I don't know. But, um, yeah, uh, Joe asks us, is the combination of Anibaba's suspensions, injuries, and Bai's inability to defend at right back when Farrell plays in the middle, finally, will it finally make Burns address the need for depth at center back? <laughs> you would... You would hope so, but you also, again, we've talked about this before, you know, 
it was obvious in the offseason there wasn't enough depth there. So I don't know why it's taken this long. Uh, there's been several situations this year where the Revolution have had a couple of injuries, and it's shown that you know, their defensive depth and center back in particular is terrible. Um, you know, I, I don't know what's taking so long, and the, the window is closing soon, and all the talk that we'd heard about um, was about a guy that's going to help the attack. So <laughs> who knows at this point? Um, but at this point, you know, signing a you know, fairly no-name guy from the USL or you know, some guy that's even out of contract that can play center back, um, you know, finding a guy like a, a London Woodbury like when they found him um, would be better than nothing. Yeah, and, and I think they might address the need for center back on an emergency basis, like you said, but I don't know who they would bring in at this point, you know, long term. I, I, I don't know, at least not for a couple of transfer uh, 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 transfer windows. Um, you know, I know Mancy ends contract. I think it, there's a team option at the end of the season. So we might be seeing some new center backs come in, you know, in the offseason. Um, but overall, yeah, I, it was a glaring need coming into this year and even if they took a you know center back in the third fourth round of the draft you know you know kind of like a nicholas samoya from last season or a josh smith uh, i think that would have been a more of a positive thing because you at least have some depth but they chose they chose to uh, not even use a roster spot on a kid out of college so yeah i, I don't know what it'll take to uh, get them to address center back and we've seen the dallas game uh, now we have next week we had this week we had the atlanta game you know it's coming back to bite them the lack of depth there well, and I'm not aware of anyone in the academy that's a defensive player that's ready to step up to this level either. So I don't think that's going to be the answer um, unless somebody's flown under the radar. I don't, I'm not aware of anybody in the academy that could, that could fill in. So I, I don't know where they're going to find somebody, but they need somebody. Yep. Uh, Mike Kennedy asks, are we in a time warp? This is just like Nichols' final season in 2011. Uh, there was even a 4-4 draw late in that year. Uh, we just couldn't get wins just like this team. Uh, Sean, uh, I, I want to kind of follow up on a question too that we had over um, the the past off season of whether or not the revolution as a franchise weren't a low point. We kind of identified this as the low point in revolution history 2011. So I want to get your thoughts on uh, how this team stacks up to that 2011 team. Uh, and if we're at a low point or if we're still better uh, comparatively to 2011. I mean, I think the roster right now is, is a heck of a lot better comparatively to, to 2011. Um, you know, the, the, that roster was a complete mess. There was, you know, Benny Failhopper was perhaps the, the best name on the roster, but he didn't seem like he was very interested in, in playing for that team. Um, so, yeah, I think that roster was much worse. Um, I think you had a much better head coach than Steve Nichol that had proven himself in the past, but was at the end of his tenure, and every coach, I think, has a shelf life, um, and, and he was reaching it. Uh, but, you know, I would be more positive if the revolution if, – had a change of direction now that the roster at least has pieces uh, going forward than than what that roster had. You, you, you look at, at guys on it, and you know there was some some talent there, and, and Chris Tierney and, and Matt Reese, though he was getting older at that point, um, that could go going forward. But otherwise, it was a lot of guys like you know Shara Joseph, who was at the end of his rope at, at that point, and his career was you know pretty much done. Um, and you know just looking at that team, uh, I think the Revolution right now have a much better roster. Do you think they have much better chances in terms of uh, playoff-wise? Because right now the Revolution are back in last place in the East. Yeah, MLS was a lot worse back then, too, and and saying that the the roster was worse. Um, But, you know, I don't think this Revolution team right now is going to turn things around. Um, I do have 
more faith that there's the talent where they could turn things around in that year if they can figure things out. Um, because like we've talked about before, you see guys like Christian Pena, Diego Fagunas, and how good they've been in the past um, and the level that they're not playing at this year. Um, and you know, you have to think you know, maybe there's a way to, to unlock those guys and get them to work out and get them to work with a guy like Carlos Hill, even though we're you know 10 games into the season now and we haven't seen it. Um, where you know you look at that roster in 2011, and I think there was a lot less to have you know any level of hope about. Yeah. Uh, moving on to uh, kind of a another question. It kind of comes up because Cullen Rowe was drafted by the Revolution in 2012. But Eric Shijan asked us, uh, how would you grade the Revs drafting since 2013? Um, I'll run through who the Revolution have drafted, Sean, and then you can give me a letter grade on, on <laughs> whether or not you approve or not. Uh, obviously, last year was Buchanan and Dewan Jones. 2018, branded by Mark Segbers, Nicholas Samoya. 2017, Brian Wright. Uh, uh, I don't know his first name because he did not make uh, the team coming out of camp. But uh, Masoso, Matso, Matos, yeah, kid out of, the midfielder out of Kentucky who didn't make the team. Uh, and there was also Josh Smith. Uh, Jordan McCrary in 2016 was the first round pick along with Michael Gamble, who I, I also don't think made the team in Femi. 2015, there was only one draft pick, Mark Fenelis, uh, who I also don't think made the team. He was drafted in the third round, but uh, they used their other three picks on Teal Bunbury, Brad Knighton, and Jeremy Hall through trades. 2014 was Steve Newman, uh, Patrick Mullins, Eric Sundley, and Pierre Omenga. And then in 2013 was Andrew Farrell drafted number one overall, Donnie Smith and Luis Sofner. Uh, so Sean, after hearing that seven years worth of draft picks, uh, grade the revolution and uh, give us an assessment on how well, they, well they've done. You know, I'll say a C. Um, and if you're comparing it to how well they did in the 2000s, you know, you'd rate it a lot worse. But you know, the, the Super Draft has become more and more relevant. Uh, so that the Revolution this year got two guys that are contributing and two guys that have you know, already started games um, in the first round is, is pretty impressive. Um, you know, some of those past drafts have been a disaster. Jordan McCreary at number 10 was obviously a mistake that didn't work out. Um, you, know, you mentioned the drafts where they you know, didn't have a draft pick until the third round. Um, you know, hard to judge very much based on that. Um, but I, I give it a C, and most of that's based on the fact that, you know, Brandon Bayer has been a solid contributor, um, and, you know, Dewan Jones and Tejan Buchanan has been about as you know, much as you can expect from a first-round draft pick in his rookie season um, at this stage of the MLS Super Draft, where the, the Super Draft really has lost a lot of relevance. If you're, you know, if you're trying to find another Taylor Twelman or a Clint Dempsey or a Pat Noonan, you know, or a Shari Joseph or those guys, the Revolution, you know, signed that were being franchise players from the draft. Uh, in 2000s, that, that just doesn't really happen anymore. And yes, there are you know, shocking examples like Julian Gressel, who's been fantastic for Atlanta, um, but that's really the exception. And, and finding guys like that you know, doesn't really happen anymore. So I, I, say, I say C, and it would be lower if not for the, the past two drafts where the Revolution have at least found serviceable players. Yeah, I, I actually am going to go B minus, um, but you hit the nail on the head that a lot of that grade depends on Buchanan Jones and Brandon by and what they turn out to be. I mean, those are three guys that started yesterday. Those might be MLS starters long-term. Um, there's all, you know, uh, a bright future potentially for those guys, but they also might turn out to be complete busts. I'm also not ri- writing off Brian Wright just yet, although I am a little skeptical that he's going to be an MLS starter. He might have a few more years in him kind of as a backup uh, type player. Um, so yeah, I, I give him a B minus. Obviously Jordan McCrary is the big miss. Uh, he was the right back drafted at number 10 and he was supposed to come and play right back and, and shift Andrew Farrell over to center back. But um, he ended up 
having, I, I believe he had a knee injury. I don't know if it was a torn ACL, but he was out for most of the season. Um, and then the revolution released him uh, going into 2017. So he didn't even last on the roster more than one year. Um, but if, if you look at the revolution's last seven drafts, Andrew Farrell, uh, Patrick Mullins, uh, Teal Bunbury with their first round trade. And then you have Brian Wright, Brandon Bay, and Tayon Buchanan and Dewan Jones. Every single year they have a guy that's still in the MLS. Uh, and so overall, I, I think that's a fairly good track record considering how year after year, um, you know, first round draft picks sticking around in the MLS is, is not necessarily a given anymore. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I give them a B minus. B minus. I think their gigantic failure is the fact that they're just catching up now with their academy. And I know we've mentioned on the last two or three podcasts, um, Miles Robinson opting not to sign with the Revolution Academy uh, and then go to Syracuse and go to the uh, Super Draft. And he was taken number two overall. And now he's having a very, very solid uh, season with Atlanta. I think that's where they've fallen short uh, in terms of not keeping up with the MLS, where even though they were, you know, having a standard performance draft wise with the the rest of the MLS. I think they've really fallen behind in terms of uh, replenishing their academy. And as a result, it's really kind of uh, got them behind the eight ball in terms of bringing in young talent. Well, the other negative I'll say as far as their super draft performance is why in all those years have we not seen them draft a center back in the first round when we've talked about how weak of a position that is for the revolution. And that's actually a position where teams have had some success in the super draft is, you know, finding American center back. It's pretty hard to find a, you know, good attacking player in the super draft these days. Um, and the revolution maybe did that with Buchanan and Jones. So, you know, great job there. Um, but in all these years, it's a little bit surprising that the Revolution haven't used one of their first-round picks on a center back um, and instead have been stuck in a position where they have to you know, bring in extremely overpriced, expensive foreign players that aren't that good. Yep. Uh, I The only center backs they have drafted since uh, AJ Soares left were uh, Josh Smith in 2017 and Nicholas Samoya in 2018. And both of those were fourth-round picks. Um, and in case you guys don't know, uh, most teams pass in the fourth round. So not, not exactly, um, high quality prospects. Um, I don't think there was any news of the week. I will say, Sean, I, I do want to bring up one quick point. Um, I don't, I, I know we're running a little bit long, but, um, I, I just want to kind of fuel your theory about maybe potentially this DP has not signed yet with the revolution because normally you, you know, there's no hesitation in naming signings and, and, you know, players know where they're going after, before a season ends. Uh, but Brad Friel did his interview interview uh with uh, 98.5 this week and he said they're working around the clock to bring in new players from overseas uh and that comment struck me kind of weird and i I know he said it before but uh, i kind of put pieces together because to my knowledge there's only one international spot open uh and that has to go to the dp so what are you working around the clock for unless the dp is a you know former u.s international or something that's playing in europe i guess that's the the only other alternative uh, outlook there. But no, I, I agree with you. And I think, you know, if you're the, the revolution and, um, you know, maybe this game is, is a positive for Brad Friedel, but if you're the revolution and you're, you know, starting to have some doubts that Brad Friedel is the coach for you long-term, um, maybe you're less excited about going out there and spending a lot of money to bring another DP in. Uh, and that could be, you know, holding up the process as well. Yep. Yep. Is Mancian's injury real and has the DP actually signed yet? Like a lot of great baseless speculation from us this week, just promoting conspiracy theories all across the board. Um, Sean, uh, any final thoughts or any shout outs you want to give this week? Uh, Just, you know, shout out to the revolution for finally playing a match that was, you know, not terribly boring to watch. Uh, There's been so many games this year where the revolution have been shut out um, that even when it's, you know, not good soccer, like this game, I don't think it was good soccer by the revolution. um, It was nice to, to finally see something that was enjoyable to watch. Yeah. And, uh, 
Also, I should uh, mention that Birmingham Legion won their first home game, a one nothing win over Loudoun United, uh, stoppage time goal. So uh, very exciting for them. Uh, go Revolution South. Um, how did Tottenham do? You want your, your 20, 15 seconds on Tottenham or no? I know Arsenal lost, so I'm surprised you didn't say that. You know, Spurs have not been playing particularly well in the league lately, but everyone else around them has been playing even worse. So at this point, I'm just focused on Champions League. And, uh, you know, until that game happens, I'm not going to care very much about Spurs uh, not doing particularly well in the league as long as they get top four, which they're still in good shape for. I just Googled it and Tottenham lost, so that's why you didn't mention it. I, I get it now. Uh, also, shout out to Fulham. Uh, they beat Cardiff City yesterday. Fulham's already been relegated, uh, but as someone who has a future on uh, Cardiff City being relegated, I very much appreciated them uh, getting the victory yesterday. Speaking, so. speaking of Fulham, uh, ex-Fulham player Emerson Heinemann um, made a very rare appearance for Bournemouth this past weekend. So you know, shout out to the American that has not lived up to the hype but got a Premier League appearance. Future Revs designated player, question mark? Baseless speculation. <laughs> All over the place. <laughs> he, he is a guy that uh, plays in central midfield, so he could totally, you know, talk about influencing the offense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sean, where can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, you can follow me at Sean L. Donahue, and uh, I usually avoid the baseless speculation on Twitter, but we'll save it for the podcast. I drag it out of you. I drag it out of you. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Revolution Recap and also like our Revolution Recap page on Facebook. We're going to ask for questions on Facebook going forward. Uh, so be aware that not only can you ask questions, but also your parents who are confused at how Twitter works. So we're <laughs> I'm really excited about that. Uh, please leave us a review uh, on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Um, next week, the Revs travel down I-95 for an Easter conference matchup against the Philadelphia Union. Uh, we'll be back with a new episode to break it all down. But until then, thanks, everyone, for listening and go Revs.